Binghamton is a special place in my eyes. And I, I love it here and I love being a part of the community. And yeah, it matters a lot to me. I was one that always wanted a little stepping stone to go a little further. So I started in radiology, went to uh, market research, marketing, and then I got a sales job selling computers to doctors. So I ended up as the alumni director at SUNY Broome, again starting, getting my foot in the door. I was thinking, what do I have to give to the greater community? And I thought about, you know, they, they say that older people have wisdom, but I don't think they necessarily have wisdom because they're so seasoned and pure and they do, it, do everything perfectly. I think people have wisdom as they grow because they screw things up. I think wisdom evolves by making your mistakes and seeing other people make mistakes. You know, they always say two ears, one mouth because it's in the listening that we really um, grow and learn and take in. This week on American Real, we bring you Debbie Morello, who for the past 25 years was a collegiate educator. Debbie is also the author of The Power of Friends at Work, a book that will be coming out very soon, and she is the principal owner of Morello and Associates. Debbie's company provides training and consulting on work relationships. She is a tenacious person, and you'll see in everything she does, she takes it very serious, and her energy is infectious. So sit back, relax, and I want to welcome Debbie Morello. I love story. Our lives are story. We engage through story. Now that I am doing American Real, I am able to help tell other people's stories. And there's an art to that. I want people to be inspired by the content. And it's not me, it's the guest. I want them to learn from the guests as I'm learning from the guests. And once you start to see progress, um, it, to me it's m motivating and makes you want to work harder to get to the next piece. Now you're pushing us to record episodes. So I had guests in and I'm learning the technology. Of course, we had many challenges and lots of resistance, but I don't know, you know, you just persevere because when you have a passion for something, you find a way to get it done. I think the biggest breakthrough, I would say after episode three, and the guests, you know, a couple of guests came up to me after saying, thank you for that interview. This was the best interview of my life. That's when I knew, okay, I'm on the right track. 
I need to keep doing this. I need to tell people's stories. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable because when you do it, you'll be surprised the response that you receive. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, join me in Podcast Your Passion. I'll take you through my eight-week course where I'll mentor you to build a world-class podcast. I'm only taking on a small group of people who want to share their passion through broadcasting where I'll have you up on iTunes and YouTube within weeks so you can podcast your passion. Click on the link below for more information. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Debbie Morello, principal owner of Morello & Associates, a company that provides training and consulting on work relationships and other issues such as trust, loyalty, communication, and boundaries. You retired from SUNY Broom Community College after 25 years and have written a book titled The Power of Friends at Work. You hold an MBA from Binghamton University and are actively involved in your community. You perform training and consulting in industries such as healthcare and other private and public sector organizations. In addition, you are a member and a graduate of the American Real Live Tribe Worldwide 21-Day Experience and are an active member in our movement. Debbie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Roger. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Well, although I've known your name in the community for a long time, for many years, um, very prominent name, very wonderful reputation in the community. Um, it's only a short time ago that, that we actually met, and we may have run into each other here and there over the years, but um, it's just such great you know, privilege to connect with you, and um, it seems you're all about others. You're all about community. Do I have that right? I love our community, and I think maybe that's why I've embraced the community. I've lived here my entire life. And it, Binghamton is a special place in my eyes. And I, I love it here and I love being a part of the community. And yeah, it matters a lot to me. So I do like to think of others. And I was blessed with an incredible career at SUNY Broome where I was able to reach students. And uh, as in my role as vice president, I was vice president for students. So I always had to kind of be looking out for their needs. And that was just, oh, talk about a great career. Yeah, and I'm sure over the years you've had a privilege and a chance to see many students succeed and grow and what's that like to be able to watch someone that is you know trying to find their path and then eventually going into the workforce and becoming something of their dreams it's incredible when um, the last couple years have been the best for me at the college I I left in August um, after 25 years but the last few years were really special because I was in charge of putting up the dormitory Oh, wow. That was under me. So the day that we opened the dormitory, a lot of the kids that were there, students, I always called them my kids, a lot of the students that came were from downstate and from other areas other than Binghamton. So there was an influx of a lot of diversity. We had African-American, Latino, um, Salvadoran students, Dominican students, together with our students from the region that are mostly European-born, of European descent like you and I. Sure. So these students showed up and, with their parents, and parents were crying, and I, I, it brought so much back to me from when my own father brought me to college, and I was first generation. Wow. 
in my family to go to college. And many, I'd say 90% of these students were first generation as well. So it was really exciting to have them there. And, you know, I wasn't prepared for the whole dorm experience, the trouble they get into. But they didn't do much different than the things I did in the early 70s. Sure. Uh, and I just really embrace the students and embrace the diversity. The entire campus embraced the diversity. I don't know if you've driven by campus, but we put a basketball court outside and students are playing basketball. And we were open all of a sudden 24-7. So you got to see how they lived in addition to the academic studies. To watch these students grow was exciting. But the most exciting thing was after two years of having the housing built, I, as a VP, I got to sit in the front row at graduation, which was incredible. To sit there and see my students that came into the housing graduate and to watch their parents ah, in the, at the arena and see the pride in their face was unbelievable. Yeah, nothing unbelievable. better, I'm sure. And nothing better. For a lot of people listening, uh, just to give them some, some backdrop, adding a dormitory may not sound that's special, but it is special for this community college because it never had that before. Right, right. It was truly a community college where people would commute right. from their home, and now for the first time people are living on campus. So uh -huh. um, that must have been really special for you to be a part of that from conception yeah. to, to opening. Well, the exciting part was a lot of times our, our local students would go come to campus, go to class, and then just go home. Now they had a reason to stay because all of a sudden we had comedy club at night, we had poetry readings at night, uh, the dining hall was expanded to have a meal plan for commuters and for uh, students that lived on campus. So all of a sudden the entire campus community came to life and, and that in itself was thrilling. And do you feel it was a good time for you to retire and move on after that Eventually yeah, I was burned out. I was living like it was the 70s all over again. You know, I was over there all the time being with the students and, and dealing with all the issues such as a leaky pipe. You know, anything that would happen in housing, I wanted to be there. I wanted to fix it and make it right. I wanted so it to be... So they had a good experience. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. That was it, to, to have them benefit from it. So, yeah, it was tiring because it was a 24-7 job. Yeah. And, you know, one of the honors... I, you know, when you read my bio, I have to tell you, the biggest blessing I had was the day that I sat with the uh, board in uh, this past April and received emeritus status. Mm. Because I always got a lot of acknowledgement for the work I did there, but to hear them read it to me, you know, when, how many people yeah. can look back on their career and say, I was blessed to be put in a place where I could accomplish something. Yeah. Well, congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. It was it is, exciting. It is a big feat. It was the highlight of, the, it was the icing on the cake of yes, a wonderful career. Sure, sure. Um, let's talk about your background a little bit and your upbringing. Uh-huh. What was it like growing up? It was, it was great. It was crazy. I had an Irish father, Richard J. Murphy, and an Italian mother, Antoinette Piccolello Murphy, and... It was wild and crazy life, you know. It was very passionate, very animated. I was the youngest, and I was really blessed to have tremendous parents. Unfortunately, my mother passed away when I was 19, and that was, that was very difficult. But I had two wonderful sisters that are still in my life today. One is 15 years older, one is 7 years older. So it was, I was a little catered to, <laughs> yeah. but, but they were 
one. It was a good childhood living in West Endicott. Okay. And you grow up. Uh, unfortunately, your mother passed when you were yes. young. What were some of the things you're thinking about from a career standpoint? Um, how did you how did you get into education? Well, I came home from I was going I started at Damon College, which at that time was Rosary Hill, and I came home to go to Binghamton University to be with my dad. My father looked like Clark Gable, and there were a parade of women that were interested in my father after my mother died. And my father found a wonderful Italian wife, Antoinette Salameda, and he married her. So I wasn't really needed at home the way I thought I would be, which was fine with me. I yeah. like to have a good time. And so I went to Binghamton University and majored in art history. Hmm. After the, because you could do that in the 70s. You could get a liberal arts degree, and it was fine. Mm -hmm. But then when I graduated, it's like, oh, i got to get a real job. What am I going to do? So I, w I stayed at Binghamton University and got an MBA while, while I was married and having children and so forth. I see. I see. And then you start your path where? At, at the hospital? Yeah, I started at Lourdes Hospital um, as a clerk. Just I had to get my foot in the door, and I started as a radiology clerk. You know, I think that it's really good to start at a level like that because you get to learn along the way what the organization is about. And really and, appreciate it, right, and, and at that level. And appreciate it yes. because then if you ever do aspire for more, and some people don't, which is great. Mm -hmm. If you don't aspire for more, you want to get home at 4.30 or 5 o'clock and not, not go any further, not work the extra overtime, but be with your family, I think we diminish that too much. I was one that always wanted a little stepping stone to go a little further. So I started in radiology, went to uh, market research, marketing, and then I got a sales job selling computers to doctors. And every doctor in town bought my computer and they hooked up, even the UHS doctors hooked up to us at Lourdes. And, and it was a wild ride and a great ride because it was on commission, which, sure. was, which was fun. And then uh, I went into strategic planning for the hospital. So I worked there for 10 years. How I ended in education, again, I wanted something different. I wanted something a little less stressful. Those were the times of managed care, and we had the HMOs, the PPOs. And, and I really wanted something that was going to be <coughs> excuse me, challenging, but not in the same way. Mm -hmm. So I ended up as the alumni director at SUNY Broome, again, starting, getting my foot in the door. We increased, it, which was also a job in sales. We increased our opportunity there, and I was asked to be a corporate training consultant for the college. So I would go around to different companies and find out what the companies needed for training and then bring faculty members and other people in the community to provide that training for the companies. That was my favorite job at the college. Okay. And how long did you do that? I did that for, well, I was director of continuing ed and workforce development. So that was about five years, and then they made me dean. So I continued in that area, but added um, international education. Little things were added a piece at a time. Mm -hmm. And then when Kevin Drum came, the current president at SUNY Broome, he loved to try things on different people, and he'd say, how do you feel about taking information technology? And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll try it out. And then, you know, how, can you take admissions, and can you get us involved in enrollment management? And I just love him for that because he gave me the opportunity to grow. Yeah. And he's just an he was an amazing boss because he really gave anyone that wanted to do anything, if you were willing to do the work, 
you can have a shot at That's it. That's great. And really taking risks at something you may not have been quite familiar with. Oh, yeah. So the challenge of that and the thrill of that at the same time. Exactly. That's great. And I think it's good to talk about community colleges. There's a lot of really good community colleges around the country. Yes. I went to SUNY Broome myself oh, for a couple you? of years. Oh, did you? What did you study? Liberal arts. Very good. And, but I had an opportunity to, uh, to do this, to do communications and, uh -huh. and learn about film and, and theater. And, you know, it was just, and I'm sure it's like this all over the country where the level of talent from, from the professors and, and the administration is top notch. Yeah. I think it's a great way for for anyone to start their, their educational pursuit. So many students would come back and say, I have my best professors at SUNY Broom. Yeah. I mean, time after time after time. Because the, the faculty and the staff really cared about the students. It was a true uh, part of our, the college mission and mm -hmm. culture was to put students first. Yeah. And I think you felt that when a you went there. Absolutely. And I also felt the camaraderie with the staff. Uh -huh. You know, there were, and I'm sure you were part of, you know, these these groups. Um, you know, you would see these people out in the community together, you know, going yeah. out for dinner, and there, there they are. So I thought that was special, too, to be able to see the bonds that were formed at the administrative level. Tremendous bonds. I've been gone now since August, and I still see so many of my colleagues several times a week. Yeah. Just because when, you're, when you have those bonds at work, you have that social connection outside mm -hmm. of work as well. Yeah. And we're going to talk about that today because that's really where we get into, I think, your specialty and yeah. your newfound love uh, in, in these relationships at work. Um, um, and I, I guess first, before we go there, can you tell us when the idea started for the book? Was it back yeah. in those days or was it more recent? It was once I started thinking about retiring, I was thinking, what do I have to give to the greater community? And I thought about, you know, they, they say that older people have wisdom, but I don't think they necessarily have wisdom because they're so seasoned and pure and they do, it, do everything perfectly. I think people have wisdom as they grow because they screw things up. I think they make mistakes, their friends make mistakes, you learn know, from that. and you learn mm -hmm. from it. And I think wisdom evolves by making your mistakes and seeing other people make mistakes. So as I was thinking about retiring, I thought, what would, help, what would have helped me as a younger manager or a younger employee? And I started looking at some of the more complex issues. I mean, there's people that look at trust, like Stephen Covey, who's brilliant in writing The Speed of Trust. But loyalty. I've seen people be very, very loyal to each other, and I've seen people pretend to be loyal and stab somebody in the back. Um, boundaries. I would go to conferences and somebody would get drunk and tell me something I didn't want to know. Or people would hook up. At, when the, the minute they got out of town, they were like, I'm the, also looking for, for situations like that. So I thought, you know, I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to write a book about work relationships, the things that happen and how to deal with them. Crazy things, but things that do occur. And then I also wanted the book to talk about you know, you may not want to do this. You may want to watch out for this, but you may want to do this because there's great, tremendous power in relationships. And I never got anywhere or anything without the relationships that I had built along the way, without friendship, genuine friendship. Yeah. And how long did it take you to write the book? <laughs> well, 
I just gave it to the final editor recently, but it took me, I guess it does take an average of a year and a half to two years. It took me about two years to write 200 pages. The, the problem was in the editing. You know, you had this whole stream of consciousness thing, and I'm sure you have a great book in you because you could write a book just about the people that you've been interviewing and, and your love for finding the extraordinary and ordinary people would be a yes. tremendous book for you to write. But from the minute you think about it and you have that whole stream of consciousness thing, that's great. But then once you start the editing, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. And tell us about that a little bit. I understand you had a group of friends who were willing to volunteer their time to help you with this. Yeah. In fact, I made that the conclusion of my book because it was evolving. I had people in my life that had worked for editorial firms that never came forward and said, do you need any help? Which was kind of disappointing, but hey, that's a reality of life. Not everybody is going to be, <clears throat> be there for you. But then people started to spring up that I wouldn't have ever imagined. Out of the clear blue sky, they'd say, do you need any help with the book? Or I have a gift with grammar. Or I'd like to help you out with your book if you need any editing. Talented people. Uh, the woman that was our director of public relations uh, at Lord's Hospital had offered to edit. They had one person volunteer, and then women in her book club, who I also worked with, um, volunteered. So I had three people. Then Brother Peter Dano, who's written two books, he volunteered. These are people that came to me. I didn't have to ask anyone. Then my best friend, who's a brilliant editor, my friend Donna, um, also volunteered. And one after another after another. So the conclusion of my book is um, it's based on something that Preston Smouse, who's one of the people that I, motivational speakers <coughs> that I follow, says, love is all there was, is, and ever will be. And my conclusion is the love is because I, I'm writing about the power of friends, and then it it came, to, it was ignited in my own relationships through these people that have edited for me. And it actually happened. It right? happened in <laughs> writing the book. That's incredible. It was transformational. That's incredible, and I understand the introduction also changed. I did change that? the introduction. One of the editors said to me, and this is Rich Gallagher, who's also known as the million dollar writer. He's made several million dollars writing books and publishing books, and he's right from Ithaca. He edited, volunteered to edit it for me, and he said, your introduction's too weak. You never get into the power behind friendships until like page 13. So I said, I, I was thinking, what can I do to make the introduction have a little punch. And I, as I know so many people that come on your show are faith-based. I've just got to put it there. I started praying about it and said, you know, Lord, help me with an introduction. And all of a sudden I remembered something that was so transformative in my life that I couldn't not put it in there. And I'll tell you this story because it, it's so amazing how things come full circle. The morning of 9-11, when we had the terrible tragedy with the World Trade Center, all of my friends went to our boss's office, Charlie Qualiata. And Charlie was kind of like, <clears throat> he was kind of like the mother hen of the whole college. Do you know Charlie? Sure, okay. absolutely. So we all ended up in his office, packed on the couches, and we just stared at the television and in and, and trauma and si deep silence. 
But in Manhattan that same morning, there was another tragedy <clears throat> and another deep grief that was to occur. And that was with a woman named Lisa Martinez. And I'll tell you how I met Lisa. When the tragedy was over, a lot of people wanted to give blood, but there was no blood to give because no one survived. And people were There were lines down on Court Street outside the Red Cross Center, people that wanted to give blood. And there were people that wanted to do things. And I wanted to make a little donation and a contribution. What could I do? But I didn't want to give it to an agency. I wanted to give it to a person. So I got the newspaper, and there were 3,000 names of people that died in that tragedy. And my eye immediately went to this one name because it was Vincent Morello, which is my son's name, and this was a police officer. So my eyes were drawn to the M's. But, but then I started looking above to see, I'm going to find a name, and I'm just going to see what resonates with me. And there was a name, Robert Martinez, security guard. And I thought, ah, oh, security guard. That's somebody that didn't have to stay. I wonder how he died. And I went to the internet at that point, and I started looking up names, and I looked up Robert Martinez. And there was a little blurb, and it said that he lived for an hour into the crisis, and then helping other people leave, and lifting up desks from people. And a wall fell down, a marble wall, and he was extricating people out, and helping get people out and staying there even though he was fine. And they knew that he was fine because he placed a 911 call about 15 minutes in, 5-0 minutes in, saying, can you send us some firefighters up on this 50th floor? We need more help up here. And so they knew he was alive. They knew he was saving people after the fact because people testified to the fact that he got them out. And then back in, get people out, back in, down the stairway. And then the building imploded and he died. And Lisa was his fiance. And Lisa on the internet had said, my dear Roberto, the love of my life, I'll never forget you. And when I saw that, I knew I had to make contact with Lisa and I found her. And I sent her an email thinking that I was going to bless her with a check. Well, what Lisa did is she started writing to me and she started pouring out her heart. And over the course of the next several months, she would send me poems and letters and stories about Robert. And he came to life for me in even a bigger way. And I was the one that was blessed. But, but how this transforms into the book or translates to the book is that I thought about how many times I see a security guard in passing. And I might say, hey, Tony, how you doing? How's your morning? Or, or hey, Mindy. Uh, one of the clerks or security guards, how are you? And they know me, they'll be, hi Debbie, but they don't know my children and I don't know their lives and sometimes I don't know their last name or they don't know much about my life. And then I think, but would they save me in a crisis? Some of them would. Would I save them? We don't know. I'd like to think that I would, but I know that Robert Martinez saved so I, I don't know how many people he saved that day, but for an hour he was saving people. Is there a deeper power of friends at work than someone who barely knows people other than being cordial, giving up their life for them? Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, what a perfect introduction. And I knew the minute it came to me and I remembered it, that was my introduction. I called Lisa, and I said, 
I have an introduction for a book I'm writing, and I want to read it to you and, and get your permission to use it if I can. And when I read her that introductory piece, she cried. Oh. Because at the end of the introduction, I say, and because of the power of friendship, because of Robert Martinez, I give to you the power of friendship. And when she heard that, she said, I feel like now Robert will be, his name will be in a book for people to see, and his memory will continue to live on 17 years after the fact. That's remarkable. Another blessing for me. Yeah, it's remarkable. And look, you talk about that. And, and here I am thinking, would, would I do that? Would, would people I know do that? You, right. I guess you don't know unless you're in the moment, but right. what an amazing story. And it's, I cannot wait to read the Thank introduction you. now. Thank you. Um, so take us through the workplace itself. So you've had these experiences. You wrote the book. Um, you're now out there. You have, you have your own uh, business um, and you're, you're helping agencies. How has this all come together for you? Oh, it kind of came together because as I was writing the book, what I realized, I, I interviewed so many people for the book, probably hundreds of other people that came forward that wanted to talk about their experiences. But what came to life for me as I was retiring was I was thinking about all the, all the times I could have been better, I could have done better. And one of the things was communication. And one day one of the women that worked for me came in my office and she said, Every time that I come and meet with you, now this was after I had gotten to be promoted to VP. She said, every time I meet with you, you're looking at your computer, you're checking your cell phone, you're looking out the door if somebody walks by. And, and I feel like when I'm talking to you, all you're hearing is blah, 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 blah. And I just sat there, and this is an employee that I really love, and I could, take, I could take that in. And I said, forgive me. And I said, that'll never happen again. And I turned the blinds down on my door and... You know, I don't believe people should just turn their cell phone over. Just put the phone away and don't make right. a big deal out of it. But I put the cell phone away, turned my computer screen so I wouldn't be tempted to look at it, and made a commitment to give her my undivided attention and, and use feedback techniques that you use in communication. She taught me a great lesson that day. And in writing the book, I wanted to teach that lesson and many other lessons that I had learned along the way. So how that translated is that I, I was out to dinner one night with one of my colleagues. She's a lawyer for a large banking firm and a great friend. And she said, you've got to teach these concepts to the people where I work. <laughs> and I said, oh, all right, I'll put together a proposal. And I went home and I thought, you're a fraud. You can write about it and you know, wax brilliant in a book. But how do you teach it? And I just felt like a phony. And... <clears throat> Went to bed that night trying to figure out how do you teach somebody how to trust? It's kind of a combination of gut feeling. Everybody I interviewed said, I have to know that somebody has my back. Yeah. So if, if I know they have my back, I can trust them. I thought that was really beneficial. But when I went to bed that night, I thought, oh man, you know, I really messed this up. What am I gonna do? I'm just, I'll forget the book, forget what I'm gonna do. I'll just do something different. The next morning I got up and I had an email from a company called the Company of Experts and they specialize in a concept called appreciative inquiry. About 20 years ago the college invested on having several of us trained in that for the campus and it was a very, very good program and an excellent model. And what appreciative inquiry is, is it's a concept where words, the words that you use create worlds 
and the worlds that we create are our environment. So if you can change the dialogue at work from one of negativity to one of generative conversation, where you generate ideas and you generate growth, then you can transform a company. Hmm. You can change um, an organization. And I thought, if we can just get people talking to each other and communicating with each other, that can, that can change the whole attitude and culture of an organization. And so I went to get my final try, went to get retrained. I dragged my friend Francis Battisti along with me. I don't know if you know Francis, sure, but absolutely. he's another excellent corporate trainer. Dragged him <laughs> along and said, you want to do this with me? And he said, absolutely, because he's game for anything that's going to be change and growth and opportunity. So uh, we took the training together and we found a local organization and I, I really shouldn't say the name because we try to keep those things proprietary. But we went into a local organization. I presented the concept that, that Francis and I both would do it for a reasonable price because we're working on getting finally certified and we needed a client company and they agreed to have us do it there for a very reasonable price. And we went in and did appreciative, uh, appreciative inquiry with the organization. And from that, spun doing strengths-based leadership, that I'm doing that directly with them on focusing on somebody's strengths and mitigating weaknesses. Because this is an organization that wants to keep their millennials, and the best way you can keep your staff is to have them really feel that they're operating from their strengths and use them for their strengths. Go ahead. And are you going to each individual to find help them find those strengths? We've been doing that in group meetings. So far I've been doing three groups of 20 and then uh, they're in the process of getting a grant that's going to help them train more rank and file workers. We train the leadership first because they have to be of the mindset to, sure. to focus on the, the strengths of their employees. I mean everybody has a they're given strengths so why do we spend our whole lives working on trying like if you're not a mathematician why would you spend all your life working on your math skills when you're a great writer right. or orator? Right. So I, it's been fun doing that. So I've been able to translate some of the concepts from the book and so forth using appreciative inquiry. Oh, I could see that. And would you say that most organizations, if not every one, have some things that need to be fixed? Every organization. Every organization. Everyone can communicate better. Everyone, as you know from the work that you do, everyone can listen more because it's in the listening, and, and you've taught me this, and the tribe has taught me this, it's in the listening that we learn. You know, they always say two ears, one mouth, right. because it's in the listening that we really um, grow and learn and take in. And not a lot of people listen these days. And everybody's so busy. Mm -hmm. Everybody's so busy doing crazy stuff that they don't need to do. If we could just focus and prioritize on what's important and focus on our strengths in, in working on these things and, and using our people, not being afraid to use other people and other talent. To, I see you do that. You know, you have your tremendous videographer. I'm sure you, you're, he would never want to be an interviewer and you would maybe not want to be the videographer. Right. Right. You, we should always operate from our strengths and also doing what we love. Life is too short not to do what's fun. Yeah. You talked about people having your back um, and I've seen that. You know, I've been in 
many jobs over the years where you just you're always wondering or looking behind you if someone really has your back. Right. Um, what is it? Is it is it ego? Is it envy? envy? What are all the things that contribute that you see? Is it the things that an average person would, I guess, yeah. come up with anyway, or, or is it deeper than that? You hit it on the head. One of the people I interviewed had just gotten a very advanced degree, and because of envy around her in her company, there were people that weren't necessarily helping her the way they had helped her when she was kind of moving up. And, and, and it was sad because... Why are so many people envious? I think it's part of our... I hate to say this, but it might be part of the materialism of our culture. Mm -hmm. And if we could just be a little satisfied mm -hmm. with a little less... You know, I, I also do a course on time management. And I said, how much time do people spend shopping for stuff they don't need? Right. We've become more material, we've become more... I think you also hit it on the head when you said ego. That's very insightful, Roger. I think it's ego, um, people wanting to get ahead themselves and pushing other people aside. But boy, when you have, when you have colleagues, and you can cultivate that. You can, if, you, if you reach out and trust first, I believe that people respond in kind. Yeah. Give, give a person a chance. Sure. And you know, it might be, it's a little bit part of my natural heritage. I mean, as you know, I love my Italianness is to jump to conclusions. I think anybody I ever dated would say, you jump to conclusions. I, I always tend to jump to conclusions, and I've had to work on that and say, today I'm going to be the last person in the room to speak. I'm going to listen to everybody else first. Today I'm going to be the last person in the room to have an opinion and judge. I'm going to watch people. I'm going to listen to what they say, and I'm going to be open-minded to what they say. And trust them. Trust them first. Love first. Yeah, and that's leadership at its best. Um, when you go into an organization, I'm sure there's a lot of enthusiasm and everyone's you know, listening and participating. What happens over time? That's what I think about. Three months, six months, a year down the road. Do people yeah. tend to go back to their old ways? Or are there programs to help? And maybe it starts with the leadership. How do you sustain that over time? That's a phenomenal question. I'm so glad. Because have you ever gone to a conference and you get all sure, revved up absolutely. at a conference and you yeah. come back and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then you don't even look at your notes from the conference again. Right. And that happens all the time. And I think it's the same for training that's done locally. Um, there, it's very much a part of continuous improvement that you have to keep going back to the cycle. I don't know if you ever heard of the plan, do, check, act, cycle, mm. PCDA. Yes. So you start with the planning and then you get the training in place, then you check the efficacy of that training, then you, the act means you go back and you do the whole process again. Okay. It's, it's cyclical and you have to repeat it and you have to be the kind of trainer that you're not in it for the money. You're in it to literally help the company and in help, yeah, make a difference and get that leadership on board so that they can do it. Mm -hmm. Train the trainer, mm -hmm. train the future leaders, so that and and affirm them. But I, I do think a, a frequent checkup is good. Yeah. If if the company can invest in that. And have you been doing this long enough yet to see any success stories over oh, some it's, time? It's been so wonderful. To the the organization that I'm working with has had a lot of change. They've had a lot of changes in leadership. They have a very very difficult job. Uh, they're serving the public, and they really, it's a very tough, tough organization. 
with great people, with phenomenal people that I've met. In the whole time that I've been training them since February, and, and we just finished one last training program this week before we start the next cycle. But in the entire time that I've worked with them, I've never heard them say one negative thing about a customer. The service is really there. The caring is really there. They all work above and beyond every single person that I've met. And I've trained so many groups, at least 60, maybe 120 in total, in total from this organization. And I believe it'll be sustainable because they're good people. And, but, but on their evaluations, I did see a couple people say, I hope this sticks. Mm. I hope this can last. Mm -hmm. What's good is that there's new leadership there, and the new leadership wants to truly develop a culture of caring and is reinforcing that, and I think that's going to make a difference as well. And eventually, can they be on their own without having to come back to you? I hope so. Yeah. That's my goal. Right, because you could reach more organizations right. that way, right? right? Well, and I do have another little segue of what I plan to do in my career that's take going beyond reaching more organizations. What I found, I, I didn't want to start working until January. So from August, because I wanted it to be in a new fiscal year financial, for financial reasons. So from August when I left until January, that's when I was working on the book and developing curriculum and so forth. Well, I'll be darned, January 3rd I get a call to work with my first client. Wow. I've never had to make a cold call since. It's been one after another, it's been blessing. But, but what, I had, what I found is in um, f reaching out and doing this kind of work that there's not a lot of people in the community and in other communities. A lot of companies have had to let go of staff. So they've let go of people in HR and human resources and they've had to let go of training staff unless they're very highly technical training. So they count on people like myself to come in and do some of the softer skills training. Sure, where they don't have to have a full-time person. Exactly. Okay. They can just contract out and, mm -hmm. and not pay benefits and so forth. And, and it's a, a wise decision in many respects. But, but the, a, the group of corporate trainers in this region and throughout the country is aging out, just like the people that work at colleges is aging out. Yeah. And so my goal, my, the next step, what I realized after I started doing this, which I love doing this, is I want to train the next generation of corporate trainers. So my next business is to start, I've established a business called Trainers International, is to start regionally and then nationally and have a web-based training program for trainers. To t where I would provide them with needs assessment, evaluation methodologies, how to develop curriculum, how to deliver curriculum, to in the niche of literally being a corporate trainer. The need exists, there's talented people. Uh, you don't have to have a very high level degree, you just have to have knowledge of techniques mm -hmm. and charisma to deliver it so that people will be receptive to it. Right, what a great idea. And I what's love your goal? When, when would you like to? start that I'm as soon as I'm planning can. to start in September. Great. Yeah. I have to do a little bit of work. I've been doing some training in South America. So I have to do a little work in South America, but I'm going to be developing some additional curriculum while I'm there. I have taken the first step by being coming involved with the Association for Talent Development. And I'm going to give a little pitch. If any of your viewers are interested in this career, they should go to the Association for Talent Development. It's a tremendous, it used to be called the American Society for, tra for Training and Development, and now it's ATD.org. 
but it's a national organization that teaches people how to do this and that works with people like myself that are providing that service. So that's a great first step for any of your viewers that think they might want to be a corporate trainer. Sure, it's sounds exciting. like a great career. It's a great career. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of what I did in my early years at SUNY Broom, and again, going full circle, uh, it's what I, when I went to Kevin and said, Kevin, I need to retire next year because I really want to do, I really want to be an entrepreneur. I've wanted it my whole life, and I, I'm ready to take that on now that I can have, you know, retirement behind me in case I don't do it well. But as it turned out, there's such a tremendous need out there, and Kevin was like, yeah, that's okay. If, if this is what you really want, yeah. it's okay. Big loss, though, for the school. I'm sure you Thanks. had a, a tough I stayed time a little that. connected. <laughs> I've stayed connected, and, and the person that replaced me is remarkable. They actually went with a vice president for students and diversity hmm. so that the campus can really, That's truly smart. integrate the diversity concepts, diversity of all types, sure. onto the campus Which community. Which is so important. And she's fabulous. Oh, that's great. So if you can, Debbie, express how it feels now that you've found your passion and you're putting it into action. Wonderful. Wonderful. You know, I, I always say that once people retire, they look a lot younger, but I think that's because they're exercising more and, like, they're <laughs> relaxed. I'm not relaxed. I'm actually going full steam ahead, and uh, I, I love it. There's nothing better, and I know you're like a perfect example of this. Is there anything better than living your passion? Not at all. That's, not at all. And being part of the tribe, oh, my gosh, that has just been... Can I talk to you a little bit about that? Let's, let's absolutely, let's okay. get into it. And for those people uh, that don't know, we'll give them just a little introduction. So Please do. the Live Tribe um, is a group that, that we formed uh, earlier this year. And it was not my idea. It was a gentleman, Gav Carlos out of Scotland. And I joined his group first. And I loved it so much, I asked him if we could bring it to American Real. And very quickly, many people started jumping in our private Facebook group and the premise is a 21-day challenge to post a live 60-second video every day for 21 straight days and it sounds easy you've done it you know and uh, we'll get into it but first I'd love to know how did you stumble upon it okay and then what made you what gave you the courage to, to join to well, sign up? Melissa Killily was my student at it I taught in the graduate school at Binghamton University, and she was my student, and I loved your interview. Your interview was super good with Melissa. Thank you. It was so good. And Melissa had invited me to be on a podcast that she does, and then she said, you know, you've really got to get involved in this tribe challenge. And I thought, yeah, because part of the business that I'm planning to form, is a good part of it is going to be online and web-based, and I want to learn how to be on camera because it's something that I have never really done. So I said, okay, I'm going to do the Tribe Challenge. I'm going to take it on. So it was really Melissa that told me about it. And then I introduced her to Eb Tutora, who ended up being on your show and is also on the Tribe. So we're all, all these connections. That's one thing that you've been so great for the community, Roger, and kind of connecting so many of us together. But I, I did the first couple Tribe shoots, and the first one I thought, oh, this is good. I've got it going on and everything. Then after I did two or three, I started looking at myself and said, when did I get so old? Oh, where, I, why did I have this big nose? I never, and then I started like getting all the vanity craziness came out. 
In fact, to the extent that I was about a weekend when I got a cold. I don't know if you remember this. Yes. I got a cold and I didn't want to be on the air, so I yes. did the old unknown comic thing. I that put a great. paper bag over my head and that cut out awesome. the eyes. Yes. But, but it was like all of a sudden a minute seemed like an hour, and then it seemed like the minute wasn't long enough to express what I wanted to express, so I had to deal with that. But what really got to me is I found out what what I should have been embracing my entire life, and that's the fact that I'm kind of twitchy and quirky. I never thought of myself as being quirky. I just spent my whole life trying to be a professional and trying to be serious and accepted, and yet I'm kind of a quirky person that has a lot of ticks and twitches and whatever. And I realized, you know what? I can be myself yeah. because I don't know any other way to be. I don't know who it was that said, be yourself, everybody else is taken. Mm -hmm. But I, I'd start watching other people and I think, they all seem so laid back and I'm doing the hands. And, and so I've learned to kind of calm down a little and help, you know, with that on, on my um, one minute. I've learned to make the most of my minute instead of rambling and going here and there to try to stay focused. I learned that what I say in the minute at first was very preachy to other people because some people just get out and they're like, oh, I'm really tired today and they're being very much themselves, but I had a message. So yes. like, then I learned that, wait a minute, I'm giving other people a message like I'm the expert. Then I had to realize that I was giving myself a message every time and I had to embrace the message for myself and learn from it. So dealing with the vanity dealing with the twitchy, quirky craziness, dealing with content and focus, trying to make a minute meaningful for me. This is a closed group. That's another thing. If any of your viewers want to do this, do the tribe. It's great. But it's a closed group, so it's not like you're exposing yourself to the whole world. It's a place where we can come and work those things out. Yeah. And then, of course, the other members of the tribe who are from all over the world are like my new friends. Talk about social connection. Isn't it great? Well, it is, and, and you described it great. Um, I think the, the biggest thing that I've learned as well is to become authentic. Yes. You find your, your true voice, and you can't avoid it. So over time, over the three weeks that you do this, it is inevitable. You cannot avoid finding yourself. Exactly. That transparency. So uh -huh. it's just great for me to hear, I, you know, I could sit across from a different person and ask uh -huh. the same question who's been, because we've had several people that we've interviewed that's been in the tribe yeah. and everyone has the same feelings. It's just happened over different times, you yeah. know, and, and um, I'm really happy that you're part of it because I love it. not only I think is it good for you as the individual, but it's, it's good for the greater community to have people like you and others in it. And it just makes it really special. It, it, it's been wonderful. You know, it also helped me deal with being scrupulous. I came out of Catholic school and I always felt like if I didn't do everything perfectly, I was gonna go to hell. So the challenge is you do a minute every day on Facebook Live for 21 days. So I got through the first cycle and then I moved into another cycle where I do another 21 days. And it was like, I had to miss a couple days. Mm -hmm. And at first it was like, oh, something's wrong with me that I have to miss. And then I thought, no, nah, I'm going to miss 
a day or two here and there and if it happens it happens and I'm going to come back and start with the day I missed and I'll I'll work it through but I'm not going to be now for some people need that commitment sure of every day so I'm not taking that away from anybody and I admire the ones that do it but I was getting in my life I've always been a little scrupulous so it's helped me realize that you don't have to be perfect right. sometimes good enough is good enough you know yeah. yes yeah and it helps I think keep us on track even if it is only a minute a day and if we miss it's okay it's taking ownership and responsibility for your own content right which you've been doing and and you could skip a day if you want you don't have to but at the end of the day it's all about fulfilling you know your own needs and and desires for whatever this may do to help you in the real world which is my next question yes. have you seen the tribe and the premise of the tribe have an impact on on your life in general has it affected about uh, you you really hit it on the head when mm -hmm. you said being authentic because that is totally I can't believe that that in the course of two and a half months it could have that much impact but it's I just feel more real I don't know if other people express that. They do. But I Absolutely. do, I can't, it's so intangible. And it's so hard to believe that doing something that seems so simple, and it's not all that simple. There's days when, when I resist doing it, but then I do it anyway. And that feels good too, because that's discipline. Yes. But uh, it's just made me connect with myself and others in a different way that just feels a little bit more genuine. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Do you have any regrets in life? In life? It's so funny you would ask me that because my, my oldest sister, who's in her 80s now, has asked me the same question and she said, do you have any regrets? And I said, well, the only regret I have <laughs> is all the times that I lost weight and looked really good and gained it all back. <laughs> but other than that, you know, I've been through a divorce. I've let people down that care about me. I know that, and that I cared about, um, but I literally, absolutely have no regrets in life. That's wonderful. I don't know why, but it just, I have a pretty high set point for happiness. You know, the Dalai Lama says people have different set points for happiness, and I have the kind of family that whenever we get together, it's really crazy, rowdy, talking, laughing, and I had a grandmother who just kind of had no regrets, even though she had a really hard life, and, uh, that's great. That's wonderful. Yeah. Debbie, if you could take out your cell phone right yes. now and call the 20-year-old Debbie. Oh, the 20-year-old. What would you say to her? Oh, wow. Boy, give me one minute if I could talk to the 20-year-old Debbie. See, not having any regrets, I would, I would just say, oh, there's a wonderful book called The Path of Peers. I don't know if you've heard I've about heard, it. Yes. And I always was trying to create my own path. And I would tell the 21-year-old or the 20-year-old Debbie, I don't know why I want to make myself legal. Um, I would tell the 20-year-old Debbie, don't worry. Let things happen to you because they will. A path will appear for you. A direction will appear for you if you just trust. Yeah. And, and don't worry as much about making it happen as letting it happen. 
That's what I would tell the 20-year-old dad. Powerful. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for making me think. <laughs> um, so what's next? I know you have a lot on your plate. You're going to start your, your school and your book, and this is your book, The Power of Friends at Work. Um, this is wonderful. What an accomplishment. Thank you. What is next for Debbie Morello? I'm definitely not going to write another book. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. I, you know, I think what's next is this whole concept of helping other people become trainers. Um, I want to help people. And a lot of people say that. They really do. But when I see so many of the young people today, they really don't necessarily have a lot of direction or they're not quite sure what they want to do. It seems like in my generation, we had a lot of structure. You know, my dad said you could either be a nurse or a teacher or none. Or, you know, we always had a lot of, our parents directed us mm -hmm. a lot. But I think a lot of the young people are a little bit more self-directed, but they're not quite sure. And we live in this whole attention society. You want to see how many likes you get on your Facebook and whatever. But I think young people really need to get some, uh, and when I say young, I'm talking about, 18 to 30 or 35 mm -hmm. people that are like, well, what next for themselves? And if I can help people get a job, I, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Dave. It's one of my favorite movies, so. Kevin Klein. Okay, yeah. it, he's, he works in a, a, a job agency, and he says, everybody works on Monday. That was his theme. And he'd come into the agency and go, hey, everybody works on Monday. And that's always kind of been... A dream of mine. I like to, and that's why I've always taught at the university and at the college and for University of Phoenix. It was like I want to help people get jobs so that everybody has a vision, everybody has something to do on Monday, and that, that's what's next for me. Trying to just help people find work. That's awesome. Yeah. How important is it for us to express ourselves, to find our voice, to share our story? Oh, I think creativity. Creativity is the fountain foundation fountain of life if you can uh, express yourself creatively what's better than that you know to be able to uh, that's why the writing is good a lot of people journal I don't really journal but I I've always liked the arts painting expressing yourself through music expressing yourself through writing expressing yourself through taking a walk or taking up biking or or swimming or whatever it takes to just let that out, let out our inner self. Um, I think that type of exp expressing yourself by doing a one-minute Facebook video every day for 21 days on the challenge, whatever it takes to let that out and give it to another person and then receive it from another person is what um, matters in this life. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you're doing great work. Thank you. So happy to have you here today. I'm happy to have you part of our, our tribe. Um, and this has been a great conversation. But before I let you go, yes. I have one last question. Okay. Uh, what do you want your legacy to be? Oh, my legacy. I, I have my legacy. I always say I have my legacy. I'm surrounded with love. I'm surrounded with love. I have two wonderful sons. They're my legacy. That's all. My hopes and dreams are for them. My hopes and dreams are for these two men that, that I was blessed with on this planet, um, Michael and Vincent, Michael Anthony and Vincent Emmanuel. 
they're my legacy. I'm so proud of them, and, and I couldn't be. They teach me. They're my mentors. And then I feel like I'm surrounded with my ancestors. My legacy is like the fact that I can carry on, you know, I haven't shared this with you ever in the past, but when I, when I went to visit Italy, I, before I went, I stopped on Squires Avenue and I got a stone out of the garden of the first house that my grandmother lived on when she came to, from Italy to America. And I brought that stone with me over to Italy. And as I went through all these towns, I remembered my, when I was a kid, I used to, I never said, tell me a bedtime story. I'd say to my mother, tell me about Italy. And she'd say, we are from the Provence d'Avellino. And our relatives are poor olive pickers. And she would say, we're, in the, we're near the city of Potenza. We're in Basilicata. And she would tell me these stories. I don't speak Italian, but she would tell these stories. And when I was in Italy, every town I'd see the sign, Potenza. Oh, I'd start crying. <laughs> Napoli. Oh, I'd cry. Every town I was crying along the way, but I had the stone with me. And then when we got to Italy, we went to the grape vineyard where my grandmother picked grapes. And I took the stone and I gave it to my cousin and I said, I want to put this in the garden because my grandmother never got back to Italy. My mother, they didn't have money. They couldn't go back. And my mother never got back. And my cousins in Italy are all very, very successful now. But I always had this feeling about my roots. When I was a kid, our relatives sent us a picture of a bride and groom, and they sent it in a package of Parmesan cheese. And I could smell the picture. And I'd be like, oh, this is Italy. This is my heritage. This is a bride and groom in Italy. And I wrote a book about a bride, the Italian bride. And that was from the time I was a child. My legacy was my ancestors, my ancestral home, Rianero and Volturi. And now to pass it forward, to take my grandmother, my beautiful grandmother, my wonderful mother and stepmother and mother-in-law who, who molded me into the person that I am and my sisters and to take all of the love surrounding me, take it forth with my children, with my students, with those I come in contact with, that's as good as it gets in life. Beautiful. Thank you. Wow. Debbie, thank you so much for thank being you, here Roger. today. And we're going to be seeing lots more of each other. Wonderful. Thanks what a so blessing. Much. Take care.